This morning, Pastor Kevin is continuing our sermon series uh, through the book of 1 Kings. And I wanna invite you to follow along as I read our passage today. It comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll begin in verse one and read through verse 10. And you can follow along in your copy of God's word. Uh, This will be on the screen behind me as well. And it should be in the message map that you hopefully received as you came in the door. Again, 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse one. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Let's pray together. God, we proclaim that you you are holy. And so we're so grateful that we get to come before you together this morning. God, I thank you for Pastor Kevin and his faithfulness to preach your word. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with him now as he does exactly that. And Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be with us as well, that you might soften our hearts to what you would have for us today. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen, and thank you for being here. Uh, Stephen mentioned when you came in, you should have received a bulletin. Um, On the back of that bulletin, you will find a message map uh, that will help guide you as we go through the message today. And while you're locating that, let me take just a moment to welcome those who are in our overflow room, or if you're watching by video or listening online right now, we want to welcome you. Uh, as well. If you're new uh, to Northway today, or if you've missed the last several weeks, um, let me take just a moment to catch you up to where we are. Uh, We have been looking at the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings was originally uh, lumped together with 2 Kings as one book, and this book tells most of the story of the history of the monarchy in Israel. The monarchy began with a king named Saul, uh, and then David was the second king over Israel, and then David's son Solomon was king as well. 
For 120 years, Israel was one united kingdom, but under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom split. Uh, In the north, 10 tribes broke away from Rehoboam, uh, and that's normally called the northern kingdom or Israel. And in the south, two tribes stayed with Rehoboam, and that's called the southern kingdom or Judah. For the last several weeks, the author of Kings has focused our attention on the northern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom lasted for approximately 240 years uh, before it was destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians. And during that time, they had 19 kings, and they all were bad. Or, or as a writer of he, uh, King says, they all did evil in the eyes of the Lord. The first king was a man named Jeroboam, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and he set the pattern for all the kings who would come after him. But then just a few weeks ago, we read about a king coming along named Ahab. And Ahab wasn't just evil, he was super evil. When Ahab walked through the halls of the castle, this ominous music would begin to play, like Darth Vader entering the room. He was this awful, evil man, but he wasn't this strong, imposing guy. Although he was an evil king, in many ways, he was just this hen-pecked wimp who was ruled by his wife, the evil queen Jezebel. Jezebel came from Sidon, what is located in modern-day Lebanon, She was not an Israelite. She was not a worshiper of Yahweh. In fact, she worshiped a fertility god named Baal, and she worshiped other fertility gods as well, specifically a goddess named Asherah. And in Israel, she had these temples that were built, these other high places of worship to these other gods, and she promoted and she encouraged Israelites to worship Baal and these other gods. And so the Lord raised up this man named Elijah, this prophet. We saw a couple of weeks ago, uh, Elijah and God's call on Elijah and what the writer of Kings had to say about this faithful, godly man who was willing to stand up to King Ahab and to the wicked Queen Jezebel. And so for several chapters in Kings, there has been this tension that has been building Uh, around several questions that all have the same theme. Uh, Questions like, is Yahweh really the God, the one true God, or just one God among many different gods? Or who really controls the rain? Who controls the weather? Is it God or is it Baal? Can the Israelites be devoted to Yahweh but still worship Baal as well? Or does true devotion to Yahweh mean a rejection of Baal worship? And for years in the history of Israel, these questions were just kind of bubbling under the surface in the religious life of that nation. And then finally, God had had enough. And if you were here last week, you heard our discipleship pastor, Ryan Knapp, Talk about the account in chapter 18 of 1 Kings where Elijah faces the 450 
prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel in what was called the Baal Carmel Showdown or the BCS Championship. Sorry, that was both a bad preacher joke and a little bit too soon after what happened yesterday, right? <laughs> Thousands of Israelites gathered on Mount Carmel for this battle. If you were here last week, you, Ryan mentioned that I got the chance to visit there in 2019 and to stand on Mount Carmel and to see what was essentially a three-sided stadium built into this mountain where you can picture all the Israelites gathered on the sides of these hills looking down at Elijah and these 450 prophets of Baal and this essential battle royale to prove who really was God. And on the heels of that incredible victory, all the Israelites who saw God show up and Baal remain silent, all the Israelites began to shout, Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God, which in Hebrew is literally Elijah. Elijah's name in Hebrew means Yahweh is God, which meant that Elijah that day had the nation of Israel chanting after he won that battle, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. It was both figuratively and literally a mountaintop moment in Elijah's life. So let me stop here for just a second and, and just say, regardless of what your current situation is right now in your life, just know that it will not always be that way. If you're down, if you're depressed, if life is not going your way, hang on just a minute. It will get better. And if you've got the world by the tail and you think everything is great and everything is going your way, uh, that's great, but just, just wait. Things have a way of turning. Don't, don't get too settled and comfortable. Life can change quickly, and that's exactly what happened to Elijah. One moment, he's on top of the world, winning the greatest victory of his life. That's chapter 18. And then you turn one chapter. You just turn the page, and seemingly on a dime, everything changes. Look back at the first two verses that Stephen read earlier. It says, now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Uh-oh, this is not good. This is not good at all. And Elijah won this great victory, but now the evil, wicked, powerful, determined Queen Jezebel has Elijah in her sights. And Elijah knew she had been successful in killing all the other prophets of God. He knew that she was very determined to wipe him out, that this was not an empty threat. She had the power and the determination to rid the world of Elijah. However, keep in mind, 
Elijah had just won this incredible victory on Mount Carmel. To all of Israel, he had proved that the so-called gods that Jezebel swore by were not gods at all. The prophets of Baal had prayed, and they had begged, and they had pleaded for Baal to show up and answer them, and Baal did not. Why? Because Baal is not real. That contest that day was not between Yahweh and Baal to prove who really was the more powerful God. The contest was to prove that Yahweh is God and Baal does not exist. It's like when your children were young and they would tell you there was a monster under the bed and you would get the flashlight out and shine it under the bed. You were not doing that to check and see if there were any monsters. You did not shine the flashlight to show your children the monster. You shine the flashlight to prove that there are no monsters because monsters aren't real. That is what Elijah did on Mount Carmel. He shined the light under the bed to prove that Baal did not exist. It wasn't, my God is more powerful than yours. It's that my God is real and Baal not so much. Then Jezebel, on the heels of that great victory, swears by the non-existent Baal and these other gods that she is going to kill Elijah. However, since those gods aren't real, Elijah said, I don't care what you say, Jezebel. I just won this great victory. Your threats don't scare me. You're swearing by non-existent gods. You weren't listening earlier. That's not at all what Elijah said. No, look back at verse 3. Jezebel makes her threats. She swears by these gods. And here's what Elijah does. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and then listened to this and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay under a bush and he fell asleep. In three short verses, the narrative here has completely changed. Victory has been transformed into defeat. The brave prophet of chapter 18 is the scared refugee of chapter 19. And more significantly, we look at Elijah here, and he is absolutely done. He is discouraged. He is depressed. And I think he's borderline suicidal. And anyone that prays, Lord, take my life, well, they are definitely depressed. Or let's phrase it another way. He wasn't okay at all. I mean, whether it was clinical depression or he was just having this really dark moment in his life, we don't know, but he was definitely not okay. Elijah is one of my favorite Bible characters, and chapter 19 is one of the major reasons why. Sometimes we have this false notion in churches that goes something like this. If you're a Christian, if you're truly seeking the Lord, you have no reason 
to ever be down or depressed. Sometimes this idea is unspoken, and sometimes these exact words are said. If you're truly seeking the Lord, then there's never a reason that you should be down. If you're really godly enough, you'll always have the joy of the Lord in your heart, and you'll never, ever be depressed. This chapter shoots that notion right out of the sky. Elijah was unquestionably an incredibly godly man. When you read the Bible, Elijah was without a doubt in the top five godly people. Jesus was number one, and then after that you have Joshua, Elijah, David, and the Apostle Paul battling it out for slots two through five. I mean, Elijah unquestionably was an incredibly devoted, good, godly man, and yet he suffered with depression in a big way. Giving your life to Christ, following the Lord in everything that you, can, that you do, does not exempt you from emotional struggles. And if you're facing depression, that does not in any way mean that you're some kind of less than Christian. Elijah was as godly as they come, and yet here he was, not okay. Some of you may be familiar with the name Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon was the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England for 38 years, uh, from 1854 until his death in 1892. At the time, the Metropolitan Tabernacle was one of the largest Protestant churches in the world. Thousands would come every Sunday and gather to hear him preach. Now, one writer talked about how Spurgeon would sometimes preach at this large concert hall in London, and how 10,000 people would come, and they would come an hour early because you had to do that to get a seat, and they would crowd into this space to hear Spurgeon preach, and that he would preach for two hours straight, and the whole time you could hear a pen drop. He was known as the Prince of preachers. His ministry expanded well beyond England into most of the Western world. He led uh, countless individuals to Christ. He had this incredible ministry, but hear this, it is well documented that he suffered from depression as well. In fact, on a regular basis, he suffered from depression. At times on a Sunday before the worship service, his deacons would have to go to his office and drag him out of his office into church and say, Mr. Spurgeon, it's time for you to go preach. And he would say, I can't. I'm just down. I'm too depressed. And eventually they would get him into the pulpit and he would preach. One time he stood before his congregation and he said these words, I quote, I do not suppose there is any person in this assembly who has ever had stronger fits of depression of spirits than I have had personally. In fact, in 2009, a London-based psychiatrist reviewed Spurgeon's symptoms and concluded this, and I'll put this quote on the screen for you. Spurgeon was suffering from a form of internal depression 
And had he presented with such symptoms today, he would certainly have been treated with a mixture of medication and therapy. My point in telling you all of that is basically the title of my sermon today. It is okay to not be okay. Even the best godliest Christians at times will struggle with dark days. For someone to say, well, if you just love Jesus enough, this will never happen to you, does not line up with known reality, and it does not line up with what we read in the Bible. And so this morning, there are two things I want to do. One is what I just said, to say that depression is something that should not be hidden. We should not be afraid to discuss emotional struggles. But secondly, to say this, that we need to work hard at fighting for joy. In other words, it's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay in that place forever. We have to work to fight for joy and to get to a better place mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And one of the ways that we can do that is to avoid certain traps that can happen during dark times. Uh, Specifically, there are four, what I think are very common mistakes that we make when we're not okay. And these four are seen very clearly in the life of Elijah and are taken directly from the passage that Stephen read earlier. In fact, you'll see these on your message map. Here's the first. Uh, The first mistake we make when we're not okay is that we give in to despondency. Look back at verse 4. It says that Elijah came to a broom brush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Uh, Again, this is... This is shocking that that he prayed this prayer. I mean, you turn back just a couple of paragraphs, and all of Israel is chanting Elijah's name. I mean, he was the most popular guy in the whole nation. He was the hero of the day. And then Jezebel says, I'm going to kill you, and he sinks into depression. I mean, when you read the story of Elijah here, it'll almost give you whiplash. I mean, in less than 24 hours, Elijah goes from the highest of highs to the absolute lowest of lows. And I think one of the reasons that he did so in large part was because he allowed his feelings to control him. Sure, Jezebel was powerful. Her threats caused all sorts of fear and worry within him. And what he did was to embrace and nurse those feelings. He took that worry and he took that anxiety and he just wrapped himself in all of those feelings and he allowed it to consume his life. Listen to me. Feelings will fool you. In fact, if you want to tweet that or X that or whatever we say now, go ahead and put that out there. Feelings will absolutely fool you. And at times they will fool you into doing things that you should not do, like going to sleep under a broom brush after praying, Lord, kill me. Feelings have led lots and lots of people to very bad choices. Feelings will lead to inappropriate relationships. Acting on feelings can cause you to go to jail. 
Be careful to not give into feelings and to allow them to control you, including when you're not okay and letting those feelings sink you down into depression. Secondly, and here's another mistake that we commonly make when we're not okay, and that is we twist reality. And we do this a lot. And Elijah did it. Look at verse 10. He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. So twice in the passage, God comes to Elijah and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Not in this physical place. What are you doing here emotionally? What are you doing here mentally? What are you doing here in this place spiritually? And here's Elijah's answer. God, I know you're God. I know you see everything, but let me describe the situation for you. You see, no one else in all of Israel is following you anymore. They've all rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. All of them worship Baal, and I'm the only one left. And God, guess what? Now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah, in his mind, had twisted reality. How do we know that? Look at how God answers Elijah in verse 18. You can see this on the screen. God says, God said, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel. Listen to this, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah said, there's nobody else. I'm it. I'm all alone. Everyone else has rejected you, God. And God says, well, that's, that's not actually right. That's not really what reality is. Well, there are 7,000 who are faithfully following me. Elijah believed that he was the only one, there was no one else, and he had convinced himself of this reality that just was not right. Let me ask you this question. Do you know who lies to you more than anybody else? Or do you know who you lie to more than anybody else? I'll give you a hint. It's not your spouse it's not your mom, it's not your dad, it's not your teacher, it's not even that IRS agent. It's you. That's who you lie to more than anybody else. You know who lies to you more than anybody else? You. We will tell ourselves lies. And, and most often, these lies will grow in our minds as we focus 100% of our thoughts and our energy on what is wrong not what is right, which is what Elijah did in this case. Now, fortunately, the Bible gives us a way to battle this temptation. And I'm going to let you in on this secret. It is this wonderful method to battle the lies that we tell ourselves. It is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18, and I will put this on the screen for you. Here's how it reads. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So if you ask, what is, what, what is God's will for my life? Here it is. It is to give thanks in all circumstances. Now let me say a couple of things about this verse. One, it's not easy. 
Jezebel made her threats, and Elijah didn't turn and say, Oh, Lord, thank you so much for Queen Jezebel. Thank you for putting her into my life. Thank you for giving her this position of power. Thank you for her wickedness. And thank you, Lord, that now she is trying to kill me. It's not easy to do. Elijah didn't do that. But here's the other thing I want you to notice. This verse does not say to give thanks for all circumstances. It says to give thanks in all circumstances. You see, Elijah had no reason to pray, thank you for Queen Jezebel, but he could have prayed, God, thank you for that great victory on Mount Carmel. Thank you for protecting me. Thank you for showing up in a big way. Thank you for proving that you are God and that Baal is not. God, thank you for the way that you showed up and thank you that you provided in that case. And God, as awful as this situation is right now, as scared as I am, God, I am convinced that you will protect me in this case too. If Elijah had given thanks for what God had done for him in the past, it would have changed his thinking and allowed him to see what reality actually was. This is something that I try to practice in my life, and especially when I'm not doing okay. When I'm not doing well, what I focus on are all the things that are causing me to not do well, all the circumstances that I'm not happy with. And so one of the things that I try to do is to just stop and thank God for all the good things that are in my life. It doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge that some things are tough. It doesn't mean that I don't say, well, God, I really don't like this. What it does mean is I pause and I reflect on all that God has given me. And it changes my thinking. It's a little bit like the old adage about the guy who was really down and depressed because he didn't have any shoes until he met the man without any feet. It changed the way they thought about his situation. That's what thankfulness does. Here's the third mistake that we make when we are not okay, and that is pursuing isolation. Look back at verses 3 and 4. It says that when Elijah came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Why exactly Elijah left his servant in Beersheba and then went off by himself, we don't know. However, I suspect that Elijah was making the mistake here of isolating himself, that he was going off to be alone uh, by himself, and that is where his not being okay got even worse. Now listen, it is fine when you're not okay to say, I need to be by myself for just a minute. That is completely acceptable. It is fine, it is understandable, and at times it can even be very healthy to say, I just need a minute alone. What is unhealthy, though, is a pattern of isolation, especially when you're not doing well. Earlier this year, in 2023, the Surgeon General released a report with this title, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. This report focused on the fact that Americans are more and more struggling with loneliness and that we are currently witnessing the consequences 
of this national trend towards isolation. One part of the report stated this, and I've put it on the screen for you. It said, loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individual and societal health. It is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. I mean, what the Surgeon General noted here is what the Bible tells us over and over, that isolation leads to dangerous, unhealthy places. Which, by the way, I just love it when medical science finally catches up to the Bible. Finally, here's the fourth thing, the fourth mistake that we make when we're not okay. You can write this in. That is developing unhealthy habits. Look at verse 5. It says, all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Now, we do not know for sure that Elijah had quit eating and was trying to starve himself to death. However, based on his prayer to the Lord, I think that is a distinct possibility. He had given up. He had given up on life. He had given up on everything, including eating. And so the angel here had to prompt him, get up and eat. One of the common mistakes that we make when we're not okay is to engage in some habit or activity that in the long run is not good for us. It makes sense in a way. We feel like we need this pressure release. We feel like we need this escape, at least for just a minute. But on the other side of that, whatever it is that we do, matters are just worse. So we're not doing okay and we turn to the drink or a pill or that toxic relationship. Or we overeat. Or like Elijah, we don't eat. Or we sleep for days. We don't sleep. We stay up all night online. And then we get to the other side of that after all of that happens. And what, what's our situation? It's worse. We feel awful. The so-called pressure release hasn't released any pressure at all. And the temptation is there when we're not doing well to engage in these unhealthy habits. When you turn over to the New Testament book of James... Here's what we read. I want you to see this verse. It's on your screen. This is in the New Testament. This is what James wrote about Elijah. It says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Elijah was considered to be this great, godly, larger-than-life figure in the Old Testament. Yet James says, he was just human, just like us. We don't know this for sure, but when James wrote this sentence, perhaps he had chapter 19 in mind. Because Elijah, at that point, very much showed his human side. And he was not okay. So two things that we need to make sure that we understand. One is what I said earlier. That being okay, not, not being okay is okay. That we do not need to shy away from the fact that sometimes we are down. And one of the mistakes we make in churches is to say, well, you can't ever be down. You can't ever be depressed. But the other mistake, the other extreme that we go to is to say, well, I'm just going to stay in this place. 
Like the person who's never happy unless they're miserable. We just say, well, I'm not going to ever get better. You need to understand that in Christ, that is never the case. That there is always, always hope. I want to put on the screen for you the the two questions that God asked Elijah. Twice, verse 9 and verse 13, God says, Elijah, what are you doing here? Not physically, what are you doing here? Emotionally, mentally, spiritually, what are you doing in this place? And maybe God's saying the same to you this morning. Maybe right now God is whispering to you, what are you doing here? I know it's tough. I know this situation is not the way that you would have it to be. I know this is not what you expected. You didn't think it would turn out this way. But you've lost hope. You've lost your trust in me. What are you doing here? You don't don't think that I'm with you through this? You think that I've abandoned you? You think you can no longer trust me? What are you doing here? Maybe this morning you need to renew your hope that no matter what the circumstance or situation is, as painful and as awful as it is, that God is with you and that there is hope and light on the other side. 